Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 13th, 2010, and my guest today is the great Mike Munger of Duke University. Mike, welcome back to Econ Talk. The great Mike Munger. It's a pleasure to be on Econ Talk again, Russ. I meant to say the great Duke University, and it may really reference their basketball team, but I'll. I'm, uh, there, there's still smoking ruins of what used to be wooden benches here on campus. Uh, there's nothing like youth and its exuberance. Um, <laughs> what I want to do today. Mike, is pick your brain about something I've started to think about, and I think you'll help me think about it or possibly get me more confused, but I'm pretty confident we'll, we'll, you'll, you'll help me. I was talking to one of my students, Michelle McAdoo, and she, she's working on a project related to profits and nonprofits and their relative performance, and I was trying to help her with the project, and I realized I didn't really understand the distinction. slightly awkward for the um, uh, when the professor's confused, and What I want to do is talk to you about some of my confusion and what I've thought about since then. And I want to start by ignoring the legal distinction between profit and nonprofit. Obviously, there are things that are classified literally as for-profit and literally as nonprofits uh, in in our world. But I really want to talk about – when I talk about profit versus nonprofit, I really want to talk about two different business models. So the first business model uses money. To motivate people, uh, it's the for-profit. Uh, you try to make the business tries to make as much money as possible for its investors and its owners. It charges as much as it can, subject to the competition, and pays as little as possible for its resources, its employees, its raw materials. Again, subject to the competition. When you describe it that way, charge as much as possible, pay as little as possible. It doesn't sound very attractive. But the key, of course, is subject to the competition, and we argue as economists often, I do very often, that competition brings out the best in businesses and forces them to serve the customer and treat their employees well. Now, this doesn't rule out pride or other non-monetary benefits that might accrue to either the owners uh, for providing a great service or the employees for working for a great company. So we're not saying that money is the only thing that motivates people, but it is the organizing principle of the business, and, and that's what most uh, businesses in America look like. Now, the second business model uses something else to motivate uh, performance and, and people within the organization. The product or the service is going to be given away without charge. So the business, the organization is going to make none of its money, none of its costs are going to be covered by the customer paying for it. It's going to be given away free to the customer. The resource costs of providing the product are either covered by volunteers who work uh, for a whole variety of motivations but nothing to do with money, uh, or it could be covered by donations, by uh, philanthropy, by foundations, by donors, by individuals who care about the activity um, for its own sake. So I want to start with with a ridiculous question, which is which model works better? The, the for-profit or the non-profit model in those two business models, which works better? So what, are your, what do you think of that? I think that the first thing I would do in response to your question is ask another question. Oh, and that is, 
aren't you really leaving something out by posing that as the two alternatives? When you describe nonprofits the way you did, and it's an accurate description, if you look at Section 501 of the IRS code, the the main justification for having nonprofits is to provide a social service or to solve some of society's problems. So is it really that nonprofits are an alternative to for-profit corporations or are nonprofits an alternative to government? Do nonprofits do things that governments might actually do? Because not only do nonprofits, as you described them, not charge anything for their service, they actually have negative charges in the case of giving out charitable donations or uh, giving money to the homeless. They're, they're, they're providing these services as an alternative to government. So my, my question to you is, are, are nonprofits, as you're thinking of them, are they really an alternative business model to for-profits, or are they an alternative business model to government? And with that, how are we going to divide up? Suppose we're doing a Venn diagram. What activities would we want these three different ways of organizing human activity to specialize in, or do we just stand back and see what happens kind of emerging naturally? Uh, there are some things for-profits are going to do well. We haven't talked about that yet, but which ones are those? And which ones are, for, are, are non-profits going to do well? And what things are we going to have to have government do? Well, that's the way I used to think about it. And I, I really – I think your point about government's the right one in that there really – there's at least three business models. I'm going to add a fourth in a little bit. Business is the wrong word. Three organizational models for taking care of some social um, – problem or challenge. One is the for pro- the pure profit model that we see around us when we look at McDonald's or uh, Macy's or all kinds of organizations in our so-called capitalist system. Then we have uh, a whole bunch of organizations that give their product away uh, and fund it through either donations or volunteers. We have coercion through taxation, and we take that money and through the political process allocate it to various things. But of course, some of those are not necessarily certain. You can already see some overlap because some of the things government spends its money on are not things that, quote, wouldn't be provided otherwise, which is, I think, what most people think of it as, but it's not true. But I'm going to challenge you about those three distinctions because I think in a minute I'm going to pose uh, the hybrid model, which is you described it as, well, we should see which ones specialize in which activities. I'm going to argue that there are a lot of opportunities for overlap where we can see bo- both models coexisting, the profit and the nonprofit model. And that surprises me, and I wa- I'll get your thoughts on it. Before I do that, I want to talk about just the basic motivational question. And to think about it, I think of what Walter Williams likes to say, and I think I probably – when I interviewed him a while back, he probably uh, – I probably brought it up, which is that if you want to get potatoes – to New York City, if you're in a restaurant in New York City and you want potatoes available on the menu and you never want to worry about them not showing up or not being available, and you know that somebody in Idaho has to get up really early uh, through some unpleasant weather conditions to make sure the potatoes are getting grown correctly and getting them out of the field and then into the trucks and or the trains, do you want them to be motivated out of love for the people of New York or out of the profit that the potato maker can get. I want them to be motivated out of love. And besides, the self-interested person is going to charge more because they're charging profits, right? 
That's right. So how come? There's two problems. One is it's the wrong motivation. Love will get me better potatoes. You'd think. And second, it's all these profits. We don't have to pay profits. Yeah, it's expensive. So it's worse potatoes and more expensive. But it doesn't work that way. And so why is it? Uh, So that's one extreme. Most of us, most economists, and even most non-economists, I think, would understand that that the profit motive has to play a role to get that person up uh, early in the morning. The example I've used in in an essay, which always helps me think about this, is – you're on your way to the airport. You've got a 6 a.m. flight, and so you've got to get there at 4.30. And uh, you ask uh, – you're telling a colleague about this or maybe your brother, a sibling, and you say, i, oh, I got to get – I got to leave at 4.30. I need a ride to the airport. So the sibling or the colleague says, oh, you know, I could take it. It's kind of early, but you know, I, I, you don't have to call a cab. I'll take you. Because they love you. They love you, and you know that. They, or they like you. They might not love you. As Even a sibling or a colleague may struggle <laughs> to love you, but I'm speaking of you, um, yeah. one. But most – I think a lot of people would say, you know, I like that cab driver showing up at 430 because they don't want to lose their job. There's a lot more at stake. I'll forgive my brother if he messes up and, and sleeps through his alarm clock, but I – as my, and my brother actually is an exception. My brother is unbelievably reliable, and I wouldn't I wouldn't lose any sleep over him showing up. But I think a lot of folks have brothers that kind of say, you know, maybe I'll just call a cab. So a lot in a lot of situations, we understand the power of monetary incentives. Not just all incentives matter, but monetary incentives in that setting is are very powerful. And yet, and yet, I can think of lots of cases where love triumphs and maybe does a better job and i want to i want to ask let, let's you want to comment on that at all before I move well, on? It, at least it does a sufficiently good job that um hospitals we observe for-profit hospitals that's my next example and we <laughs> observe hospitals that are run by charitable organizations and in a sense they compete with each other they do but don't they sense. offer a different service one is not so sure we are going to come in. They say they do. They say they do. You come in, and we're going to charge you a price. And the other is, we're going to give this away because you're indigent. Well, is the nature of the charging just different? I don't know. For-profit doctors um, often do charitable work. Uh, I would suspect that there are Idaho farmers who donate some of their potatoes to a food bank. Even attorneys do pro bono work. Even attorneys. Shame on you, Mike Munger. <laughs> <laughs> Even economists do pro bono work. Let's let's leave it at that. Uh, we often blog for free, uh, but here and I'm going to come to that actually in a little bit. But I want to stick with the doctor example because that was the matter, hospital example. That was my next next example. Let's think about in the 19th century and early part of the 20th century, a hospital was a place where poor people went to get medical care who were indigent, who did not. There was no health insurance or it was minimal. Uh, Normal folk, non-poor folk, middle class, rich and rich people, the doctor came to your house. The hospital was a degrading and unpleasant place where poor people were who had no other alternative chose to go. It was typically, I assume, free or very inexpensive. If it was – certainly wasn't – there was no market pricing there. Yeah. And it was funded out of charitable donations, often by a religious organization, sometimes by ethnic groups would have their own or sometimes um, – uh, 
occupations, yeah, sailors, and others mm-hmm. would fund voluntarily yeah. medical care for its members as a form of a form of implicit insurance or actual insurance. And th- in those systems, you, if you asked what would, where would you rather go to the hospital or to be treated at home by a doctor for money, I think every person of the day would have said, "I would rather go to a." Uh, a doctor and give them money rather than have to go to the hospital where the poor people go because the care there just won't be as good. And yet in today's world, we now have this weird hybrid system, weird in the sense that it's somewhat puzzling to me. It's not literally weird. Everybody's in it all the time, never thinks twice about it, where we will have, say, a university hospital, which a lot of people say, that's the one you want to go to, where in theory, not in fact, of course, but in theory, it's not for profit. Of course, it does generate revenue, but it need not. It could be that a hospital today – and forget all the government complications, which makes this story messy. But a hospital today could be for people – there could be two kinds of hospitals. Hospitals that you go to where you don't have to pay and the doctors who work there either work out of love, uh, volunteering, meaning that's what I mean by out of love, or their time is paid for just like a hospital. They get a salary. But it's not paid for by the customer. It's paid for by people who want to make sure that poor people have health care. So I still, I still want to ask if those aren't just different products. It, it may look a lot the same when you go in, but in one case, it's something that's being provided out of some sort of – it's being financed at least. Correct. Out of the selflessness of the donor. The doctor could be donating in kind his or her labor or could be paid and the donation is from the contributor. Somebody isn't is – Isn't that different from a fee-for-service arrangement where I go in and you're just, you're just comparing apples and oranges? Well, the apples and oranges part I'm comparing is that in this – the way I've constructed the nonprofit example, which I will uh, mention is the EconTalk example. EconTalk is provided at no charge to the it's, listeners. It, it, it's just market price, I would say. Yeah, that's a possibility. <laughs> uh, but there are people out there who would presumably pay something. It might be hard to collect it. But a, a number of uh, – Liberty Fund, which is the sponsor of the program, funds a, a payment to me and the time of the people who also work on the program, the engineer and the and uh, the webmaster who puts them up on the – help puts them up on the web. And, and the and web space. All the, the equipment, the server, and all that. The, the listeners pay nothing, and as a result, there's a disconnect between the provider and the customer that we normally would say in economics is problematic, and I, I want to talk about some of those issues in a minute. But if we think about a hospital, wouldn't it be better for the poor people served by the hospital to pay something or for the donors to give the money to the poor people rather than to give the money to the hospital and have the customers – pay zero. And yet, I think most people would say, well, that's okay. That's what charities do. Charities don't charge, and they raise their money from people who care. And businesses, they do charge because that's better. And as a result, there's more of an incentive in a for-profit business to serve the customer. In a charity, there's always this tension between who's paying, really paying the bills. And you'd think that it's the donors who call the shots, not, not the poor people. In the hospital, if there were particular religious objections to some 
procedures. We don't need to go into what. Let's just suppose there were some objections. The hospital would not provide those because the donor would object to having them provided with the money that he or she had donated, whereas from the perspective of the indigent person who goes there, that's the procedure they actually want to have. And so, well, and, and coming back to your government example, we could certainly imagine different charities that handed out money, no questions asked, which is what government does through through taxation. Government hands taxation pretty much hands out money, no questions asked. You could imagine a private charity, though, that would try to find out whether people could be working instead of accepting the money, whether they have an uncle who could pay for some of the things that the charity covers. That's the way charities were run in the early part of the 20th century yeah. and before. There was – it was it was customized, and as you point out, the donors has a lot of say. That it could be they wouldn't let the the the, the poor person use it for drink uh, or alcohol or drugs or other things or, or all kinds of things that the donor might care about. Because an economist is always going to say, well, what you should do is give vouchers or money to the consumer, not to the producer, because then the consumer is going to decide what he or she wants to spend it on. That model is, interestingly, not going to generate nearly as many donations, either in kind or in money, because the donor has a specific thing. They need health care. They need clean water. They need something that I care about. So it is interesting that it's fascinating, in fact, that the donor is probably at least as concerned about improving the welfare of indigent people in a specific way. This is what I think you lack. Whereas if we just give the money to the indigent person, they'll spend it, but they very well might not spend it on what the donor wants them to spend it on, which is a, a funny kind of paradox. Because yep. that presumably really does make the indigent person better off. Well, I want to... Yeah. I, they're I, not constrained, but we want to constrain them. What, what nonprofits do... The reason that we give money to the producer and not to the indigent person is we want to constrain it because the donor thinks this is what they really need. Well, I'm not so sure I agree with that. I agree that there's a force in that direction. But to come back to one of our earlier podcasts, and this is uh, – and I know something you're thinking about. You can view the charity as a, as a middleman. What the charity does, when I donate to the charity, I, you're right. Part of the reason I might donate is that I want them to fulfill my – goals for a particular kind of help or aid. Uh, but the other reason could be is that I'm not very good at finding real poor people, or I don't know how to help them in way – I'm ignorant. I don't know what they really need. So I'm not going to say – I'd like to just give them money. Uh, and as a result, I, I would give to a charity that doesn't come give its aid with strings attached, right? It's possible. I agree with you that most people don't feel that way. That's an economist kind of view of, of poverty, and I tell the I tell the story in my book, The Invisible Heart. It's based on a true story of a friend of mine. She told me that her brother always carries around a VA juice. Uh, so if he sees a beggar on the street or a homeless person, he can give him a VA juice instead of money so he won't waste it on, on <laughs> liquor. And you know, my first thought is, well, then he won't eat breakfast and he'll take the money he would have saved on breakfast and use it on yeah. liquor. So you're only fooling yourself. My second thought is, well, why would you make him ha eat a drink of VA juice? He needs a drink. He wants liquor. I mean, yeah. His life's miserable and you're giving yeah. him a VA juice? Shows a certain disrespect. Well, if he can get some vodka, he can make a bloody marriage. Well, that's so. true. It's it, there's a, <laughs> there's a certain compassion there, I suppose. Uh, so, so we've we've drifted far afield. What I'm interested in 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 honing in on is when I think about the hospitals in, in America today, of which there are both profits and nonprofits, 
And we could think about the universities in America today that are they have a whole range of flavors. We have state-run, highly subsidized. We have private that are somewhat subsidized by all kinds of things, including donations, both of which are uh, nonprofit. But we also have for-profit universities, educational institutions, training, gra- training schools. Um, which of those would you want to go to? If you had a bad health problem, God forbid, would you want to go to a place where the doctors were there uh, because their time was funded either out of their love and volunteering interests and the donations of people who cared about you, people like you? Or would you want to go to a place where they would just want to make as much money as possible? And I think as economists, we don't really have a very useful way to think about which of the I, – I thought we did. But when I think about it some more, I struggle to think about what's really different in those cases that makes that an easy question to answer. I don't think it's so easy. Is there something lurking in the background that healthcare is just different? I think it's hard to think of another example of an industry where that choice is as real as you rightly make it. I might very well choose a, a charitable hospital or a nonprofit hospital as being better. Now, some of that would depend just on a kind of local path dependence where a good hospital in my area for a very long time has had this tradition of uh, being charitably funded rather than being uh, for profit. And sometimes they convert. They might go one direction yeah. or the other. Uh, but it, are, are there other industries that are like that, or is healthcare just different? Where this this tradition of commitment to helping and caring about other people is just unique. I th- well, we, let's, we don't we don't really see. Well, that's, that, that's not true. We, we we actually see nonprofit charitable farmers co-ops here in North Carolina. Mm, there are yeah. several places. There's a in Carborough, the People's Republic of Carborough, here in North Carolina. Uh, there's there's the really, really free market. And in the really, really free market, what people do is they bring stuff that they have, and if you want it, you can take it. But you're supposed to bring, it's not a barter system. You're supposed to bring stuff that you have, and you can get a lot of free food there. And a fair number of people actually do benefit from that. So I, I think I'm wrong. I, I Let me take that back. I, I'm not so sure that healthcare is different. Yeah, I was going to mention food in a different way, because we started with our story of the Idaho farmer, who's motivated by money, and that system works really well. And I would argue the for-profit food world has served the poor very well in driving down the price of food to, to very low levels. But we could imagine a world where uh, poor people got their food not through the marketplace. And again, I'm putting aside food stamps, which is the government third alternative you mentioned earlier. Putting aside food stamps, but if we're worried about people going hungry at night, we could say, instead of saying, well, let's just let people try to make food as cheap as possible, which works incredibly well to the point where we supposedly have an obesity crisis in the United States because food's so cheap. Instead, let's just say, uh, let's raise money to give people free food. Uh, a friend of mine, Beavis Shock, used to suggest what we should do for welfare is we should just pile up a bunch of, like your Carver story, we should just pile up a bunch of food and put it in a big warehouse and let anybody come take it who wants to. And I, w- I suggested, the, well, let's videotape it so we could, you know, and, and show it on a, some kind of TV channel <laughs> late at night so that if you saw your rich neighbor taking advantage of it, it would be slightly embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> but, but in general, the idea would be that, you know, people who have plenty of food generally aren't going to try to get extra free food. And for people who are truly hungry, let's just, no questions asked, minimal administrative costs, just pile up the food. And it's kind of a cool idea. 
But then you start thinking, well, but one of the things that makes markets work so well is this Hayekian solution to the knowledge problem, which is the idea that we don't know what people really want. You pile up a bunch of Cheerios. Turns out that's not what they want. The marketplace steers information. The prices send signals, et cetera, et cetera. And yet a lot of people, I think, would assume that that the free food would be the right way to help poor people. And then – and then, the, and you motivate farmers to produce that free food and to bring it by saying, you're helping people who aren't going to go hungry as a result. Yep. That's a very concrete way of, of helping people. Well, why is it that so many people are willing to devote so much effort to contributing their time instead of money? Many times, if you see a fundraiser, um, and I'm because I'm a cynical, not I'm a cynical, I'm, I'm an economist. Yeah, that's enough. It's so <laughs> it's redundant. Yeah. So when when someone uh, they my my son rose on a crew team and they're trying to raise money and they asked if I would come and spend four hours working at a booth selling stuff and I would be one of four people at the booth selling stuff we're probably going to make three or four hundred dollars you split that four ways in four hours twenty yeah. I'm happy to give a hundred dollars not yeah, to do that you bet but if you do that that's gauche. not nearly as good as going and spending your time yeah it's gauche. Well, this gets us – let's go down this path for a minute because it's so interesting that you know, this idea that you're going to do something for charity, you're going to walk 25 miles or shoot 1,000 baskets, um, it's a very strange idea because I always thought, well, why not just go do something productive, yep. take the money and – take the 1,000 hours of, of basketball shooting or whatever it is, go take a job and, and pay people, uh, take the money and, and pay cash to the charity, make a cash donation, why is it that I've got to go through this stunt, which obviously has some social benefit because otherwise it, I don't think it would exist, that, that you, you go around and you, in, you ask people to sponsor you to do something meaningless. <laughs> and yet people do it on both sides of the transaction. They shoot the baskets yeah. and they give the money. Um, it has to be meaningless. It's actually important right. that it be costly and meaningless. Is it supposed to show – again, I, I assume it's a signal of love and affection, of commitment to the cause. Well, the world is about costly signals. Yeah. So you're saying, look how much I care because I'm doing something nonsensical. It has to, it's important that it be nonsensical. Yeah, I find if, that if, – If you give your wife a gift certificate, that's not as good as flowers. No, it's not. But uh, the flowers are going to wilt and disappear. And the gift certificate, she gets to choose what she wants, and maybe she didn't want flowers today. Yeah, what she wants is to smack you upside the head for giving her a gift certificate. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, that's another, you know, what, what I like about this conversation so far, and I apologize to the listeners out there, it, it has a certain um, chaotic nature to it. But what we're talking about in all these examples is what I would, what I think of as a, as a disconnect between sort of the textbook way of looking at incentives and money versus uh, the cultural trappings around all these things. So, you know, gift certificates. There's a, um, you know, it's a book out and studies, and I'm forgetting his name right now. You maybe remember that shows that Christmas is inefficient, and the reason it's inefficient uh, yeah. is you give gifts, and that way uh, it'd be better to give money because yeah. then the person could buy what they like. And only an economist could write a book like that, you know, write a study well, he, like that. He, he's fundamentally wrong, actually, in every important way. I think so, but why do you think so? Um, people disagree. It makes them less happy. We, we can argue about <laughs> whether subjectively somehow they're wrong yeah. for getting that gift. But there, there's, I don't think there's any question that having a gift, which might not even be precisely what you have purchased, uh, 
is not as good as getting. It is worse. Is it, forgive me, is better than than getting money. Yeah. No, nobody. And I always like the example I always use is you invite me over for dinner and I bring you. I was going to bring you a bottle of wine. And I say, Mike, here's a twenty dollar bill. Get yourself a nice bottle yeah. and choose the one you like. Because after, I'm you know, not sure. Do you like red, white? It's hard yeah, for me to know. Uh, and and this way you can choose. And maybe you don't even want a bottle of wine tonight. Again, you want something else. But it is clearly. Um, it's not what people do. That's your first point, which is evidently that's not what they want. And Given an opportunity, it's never basically what they do. Although there are gift certificates. There are. Uh, but in many cultural settings, they're inappropriate. Uh, wife's birthday would be one. Uh, dinner guest would be another. Yeah. Um, uh, ca- or cash. By, by gift certificate, I mean basically cash. Yeah. It's just generally not done. Um, and there's a reason for it. And it's not you know there's some obvious ways to answer why people do it. You could say, uh, you know, a common argument is well they don't know what you paid for the bottle of wine, and that way you can instead of giving them twenty, you can only spend ten, which is absurd. I mean, people shop for wine; they know what wine they know what wine costs in general. They, it, that's a, that's a bizarre argument. As you can hide if, if you were able to match what you know they like, it's a much more charming gift, even if it's cheap. So a bottle of wine that's $7, but that uh, you know I really like, I think he cares about me. This is, not a, this is not a financial transaction. This is a transaction that takes us into a personal relationship. And so having a personal relationship with the charity, the, the way that charities are able to raise money is to say, here are the things that we're doing with your money. Here's why it matters. Here's the personal connection that over the long term means they're actually going to be able to raise more money. It is self-interested Correct. to, to be able to portray yourself successfully, actually. It can't be fake as not caring about money. You can make more money by not caring about money. And the, the, the economist's name was Joel, Joel Waldfogel. That's what I thought, but I didn't want to make a mistake, yeah. Um, let's say that again. You can make more money by not caring about money. Well, the, the, the reason that nonprofits are able to raise money from donors is that they're saying, we don't care at all about money, and all of it is going to go to the recipients. So the people that you care about, we are going, we're, going to, we're going to spend it efficiently, and we ourselves live like monks, basically. We've taken a monastic vow. Money doesn't matter to us at all. Our doctors are motivated only by uh, the desire to help people. If they can actually cultivate that reputation, they'll get far more money as a result. So it's self-interested from a nonprofit perspective in terms of raising money and providing more services to be able to say, we don't care about money at all. It's all going to go right through us. Well, you mentioned this as a uh, nonprofit phenomenon, but let let me put it back into the profit context and make it a little uh, more confusing. This is a quote from... Merck, and I used it in my book, The Invisible Heart, it's a motto that Merck used to have, or at least some kind of um, inspiration. An executive. Merck is a drug company? Yeah, pharmaceuticals. Uh, they said, quote, We try to remember that medicine is for the patient. We try never to forget that medicine is for the people. It is not for the prophets. The prophets follow, and if we have remembered that, they have never failed to appear. The better we have remembered that, the larger they have been. So you know that's the same idea. If you tell people in a in a for profit organization, you know our goal is to make as much money as possible, doesn't do generally doesn't do very well. If you say our goal is to help people, that's 
paradoxically the way, as you say, in the, in the nonprofit setting as well, to make the most money. But it's very difficult to make a credible commitment, really, to care more about consumers than about profits. That's right. Some of it Anybody is. Anybody would say it. Yeah, some of it is window dressing or flim flammery or something. Well, so the maybe the reason that we see nonprofits is that it's a way of binding themselves to the mast. Even if we really care about profits, we can't make any. And so, give us your donations. Yeah, the problem with that in the modern setting is that. Is that nonprofits, again, and now going back to the legal distinction rather than just the economic distinction we've been talking about, the legal distinction, a nonprofit can pay its employees a ton, uh, can have lots of all kinds of goodies for its uh, – that are non-monetary for its employees, Im- influence, prestige, et cetera. So it, it really is kind of a – unless you do not charge and do not collect any money – uh, that is really an, uh, a bit of, of romance rather than the real thing. But there are there are rating agencies that give percentages about administrative costs. That's true. So there's an information asymmetry, it's true. And just a few years ago, uh, several large, I'm not going to name them, but several large nonprofits had problems with their executives were riding around in limousines yep. and flying on Learjets. And, but that came out, and the the like in any... Asymmetry like this, of course, sort of lemons problem. The economists call it uh, lemons because you may get, uh, you can't tell what quality you're getting, and the whole thing will dry up. If just a few nonprofits are clearly wasting money, they're not doing it on profits, but they're doing it on compensation, then all of the contributions are going to dry up. And so you get rating agencies saying, no, no, this one, this one sends 90% of your fund, only 10% administrative costs. So there, there may be some ways of trying to solve the oh, problem. Absolutely, but uh, it is interesting that we see for profits and nonprofits in the same industry. Whether it's the same product is debatable, but certainly serving the same, maybe some of the same group of customers. Yeah, I want to, I want to come to that, and then I'm going to shift gears. So hold that as a pl- as a place thought, and then I before we do that, onto that, go on to that. I want to say something about gifts. I actually disagree with you that that the best gift is the one that you would have wanted anyway, uh, that I find the wine I know you like or the music that you like, because I think that starts to approximate giving them money. I think the best gift is the gift that you didn't know you'd like. So I go out and I find an author or a or a band or a movie that, that you've never heard of, but I put enough time into our relationship that I have an idea that you'd like it. Now, sometimes that fails. Sometimes the sweater is the color you actually don't like because it doesn't look good on you. You just—it's not that you never thought of wearing the, the 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 lime green sweater. It just doesn't—you don't like it. Uh, but often I find you a book or a, a a band or a movie or whatever or, or a piece of art or a vase that you actually do like. You never would have bought it for yourself, and I think that's the, the that's the kind of gift we ultimately uh, strive for. And I do think it's an important signaling device. It's a way for me to show you that I that I think about you, not just I'm spending money on you. I wonder if I wonder if it's that, or maybe I do know about it, but I would never have bought it for myself because it seemed uh, frivolous or self indulgent. <laughs> but when I get it, I say, "Oh, I'm so glad to have it. I just love this." That's the other paradox, which is uh, according to the Waldfogel analysis, if I buy and, and, and again, this is a to me the textbook economist analysis, which I think is wrong. So let's say um, there's a um, 
Mike, your favorite baseball team is the St. Louis Cardinals, if I'm In not fact, mistaken. In fact, I just, I just got a Chicago Cubs doormat to put Perfect. under my desk. Oh, I've got to get one of those for my kids uh, who <laughs> like the Cardinals. I have two kids who like the Cardinals, two Red Sox fans. But, so, so I know Mike likes the Cardinals. And let's say, who's your favorite Cardinals player, Mike? Well, I, I like Albert Pujols. I like Albert Pujols, but I, I, I like one that's probably going to upset you. Um, he scored Enos Slaughter first Enos Slaughter. On, in the nineteen forty six World so, Series. So, yeah, so, I, I have a signed picture of Enos Slaughter, but it isn't a very good one. Uh, I, I'd like a much better one. Okay, so let's suppose you have this pretty good one, and I'm so nice. Mike's making a reference to the fact that Enos Slaughter scored a winning run in the nineteen forty six World Series. That meant that my Red Sox lost and his Cardinals won. Neither of us were born, but it's interesting we still care about it. I'm such a good friend to you, Mike, that I'm going to get you a piece of Enos Slaughter memorabilia that you would not buy for yourself. It's, it's $300, and there's no way I would pay that much. It's not worth it to you. You would no. rather have $300 than, than this frame uh, uh, photograph signed by Enos Slaughter that's really beautiful. And I go buy it for you. Uh, now – I don't think anybody who gets that gift says the following, gosh, I wish I'd gotten the money because then I could have had $300 and bought something I like even more than this. Yeah, I, don't even, I don't think – not only do they not say it, they don't think it. They don't – nobody even – only an economist thinks it and not for very long. And that's and, what Walt Fogel says. He says that on average it's 16%. You would pay 16% less and that's why Christmas is no good. And elderly people, it's probably more like 40% what you get from your grandma. You would pay at least 40% less than what she paid for it and she's better off giving you cash and that's wrong. I am so happy to have that Enos Slaughter photograph. And, and and part of it is, and here's the irony, and this is where the you know the standard textbook model breaks down. I, th- I think the reason you want to have it is you like it. You like it, but not three hundred dollars worth. And it could be a lot of reasons you don't like it for three. It could be your you know your wife's. This is an easy one. If your wife would be upset that you bought it and I buy it for you, you're thrilled. But that's not the case I'm talking about. I'm talking about the case where you just think, oh, I just I quote can't I, I shouldn't get it. I, I, I it's not worth it. But now you get all the benefits of looking at the picture every day, and there are no um, – Well, the, if I bought it for myself, it would be self-indulgent. That's the sort of thing that only someone who just loves themselves. But as a gift, well, it's a sign of your esteem. Correct. So just send – Mike, just send me the, um, the catalog number, and I'll send you a check, and you can buy it for yourself. Okay? <laughs> so that's what's great about and, and that illustrates to me really how that would really, I think, offend you. But if it showed up uh, on your door, you know, on your doorstep where you could step on the Cubs mat as you yeah. as you pulled it in from the UPS driver, <laughs> you, you'd be ecstatic. Yep. Uh, I want to go back to the um, hospital case, and then I want to totally shift gears. Uh, do you remember what you're saying about hospitals right before I went back to gifts? You were well, saying we were, that they we coexist. With, yeah, that that the the different ways of providing the service coexist, and apparently. In, I mean, we, I, I started to say in equilibrium. It, it, it seems pretty stable. It's not that one's disappearing. Both are expanding at about the same rate, and there seem to be some advantages of nonprofits, partly because of what we've talked about. It's a way of uh, inducing people to give more contributions, but also genuinely out of the fact that people uh, like the idea of providing this service for free or at least at a reduced cost to people who need it. Yeah, but I think the hospital thing is a little bit of a, a red herring because I think most nonprofit hospitals charge for their services. It's true they have a they have an indigent 
part, but so do for-profit hospitals. I, I, I think the hospital thing really is um, – it confuses what's fundamentally going on. And that's why I suggested that we should think about a model that was only – that was what, what I would call a real nonprofit. They collect nothing. Uh, it's just there's no fee for service, and the people who donate to cover the cost of the hospital do so because they, they care about the mission of the hospital. And we don't see that uh, for no, obvious hospitals. reasons. The reason yeah. we don't see it – as a side note, we should and I should mention it. Um, you know, government provision of these things has crowded out all of the private, non truly nonprofit ways that this these would be provided. The expansion of government in the early nineteen um, thirties uh, at the federal level basically eliminated private charity to help the indigent, help the hungry, help the uh, the uh, the sick who are poor. What most private charity goes to today, almost all of it. Very, very little of it goes to the indigent. It's been crowded out. You will see a food, you know, a soup kitchen for homeless people because they can't manage to get food stamps. They don't have an address. They don't want to fill out a form. They're not integrated into normal bureaucracy. So you can still collect money to fund a food uh, a food bank or a soup kitchen for homeless people. It's very hard to compete with food stamps, say, via private for gen- the general poor people via private charity. Yeah. Okay, so I want to. Sh- but where, where do we see nonprofits? I, I guess I'm, I'm a more cynical. You're a nice guy. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm more cynical than you. I mostly see nonprofits to provide subsidized services to rich people. I yeah. see nonprofits for Correct. museums, Correct. art museums, the opera, and what they're doing is taking advantage of the tax exempt status of this to subsidize services to themselves and claim credit at their big gala for being a contributor to their social class, to the Correct. people that say, look at us, we're contributing to the opera. Yeah, no, that is a um, – and, of course, they have some window dressing around it to try to make it look like – you know, they'll have some programs for inner city schools or they'll bring the opera company in to, to, you know, to sing the Marriage of Figaro. But the, the fact is, is overwhelmingly the tax status of those institutions are helping rich people, which is bizarre. Um, it is somewhat different from the, the original it's, rationale. Yeah, that's the right way to say it. Not bizarre. It's perfectly normal. But perverse. <laughs> yeah, if you pretend it's what something else. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and that would be true of education as well, right? The, the, um, the nonprofit status of universities overwhelmingly helps uh, rich people who go to universities. But, of course, there are a lot of increasingly middle and poor, lower-income people who go to, to university, which I think is a good thing. Yeah, sure. Um, but it is um, – now, now I want to get to the um, – well, I'm going to stop at one, make one stop along the way. Um, the reason I've been thinking about some of these issues is I had a guest on last week, Art Devaney, two weeks ago. And Art uh, has some interesting and provocative theories about nutrition and diet. And um, he has a website. And that website used to be free, and now it's not. There's some free parts to it, but if you want to get to the good stuff, you got to pay a, a subscription fee. Uh, you got to he charges for the service. And some of the commenters to that podcast were offended by that, and they thought, um, you know, here he is promoting his website on this podcast. And I had a, a couple of thoughts on that. One is, well, that's what we all do. We're all selling something. Sometimes it's just our reputation or our brand name to try to get money elsewhere, but is really that's not uncommon 
you know, an author wants to sell a book. We have lots of authors on here. Nobody complains. It's interesting. Nobody complains and says, oh, he's just talking about his book because he wants to sell copies. It's true. You don't make a lot of money selling books generally, but we're all selling books. We're all doing other things to help bring money in. It's, I, we call it capitalism. It's nothing shameful about it. If you don't like it, don't go to a site. Don't pay for it. You know, that's the way the world works. But I think there's some hostility um, to this, partly because, and I don't want to overdo this, and that's get your reaction, partly because we have a lot of free stuff available to us. And I wonder if we're getting a sense of entitlement. So Cafe Hayek, where I blog, you blog at Kids Prefer Cheese. We don't charge. It's free. I kind of like it that way. I don't have to post every day. I just took a week or two off. I'm trying to finish a paper. Um, I'm busy. I don't feel any guilt about it. I feel a little bit of guilt, actually, to my co-blogger and a little bit to the readers. But in general, you're not paying anything to read my stuff there. And so if I want to take a break, I, you know, that seems okay. Um, but I don't do that at George Mason. George Mason pays my salary. And it could be we had a diff- we could have a different model. People could say, how dare somebody try to make money teaching and helping other people understand how the world works via economics? And we could have some donations. We could have other ways of doing it, but we don't. We have something in between profit and nonprofit. We have a nonprofit uh, legally, and it's certainly – there's a big disconnect between my students, how much they pay per uh, – But you, you, keep, you keep writing stuff trying to get a higher salary. It, you're a pig. Yeah, I am. That's right. I'm greedy. I'm self. I don't like that word. I'm. I'm. I'm interested in money. I, I want. You are. You are interested in having your salary increased, and you do those things that are somewhat likely, at least, to make them say, "You know, this is a really valuable guy. Yeah, We're going to pay him more. Give him a good raise." Uh, I want to. A lot of those things are in public. You're you're doing things publicly that appeal to an audience where you can say, "Look at this. Look at this thing that I've done." And. Now let me segue to the media. So right now there's this obvious problem that newspapers have that they're not making much money. Their old source of revenue was um, advertising. That advertising has been stripped away by Craigslist and other internet features that make it hard to charge people for that information. And I would argue that newspapers and Art Devaney's website and Econ Talk and Cafe Hayek all have something really important in common, which is that it's very inexpensive to expand the audience by one member. So there's a certain really attractive thing about the fact that they're really cheap and that the costs are covered by people other than the customers. So in the case of newspapers, it used to be advertisers who were willing to pay to get their ads in front of those eyeballs. Now that they're having trouble doing that, they're going to have trouble collecting the money. But, of course, they could become charities. The New York Times could create a foundation, not charge for the New York Times, give it away for free, which it, it does on the web, and, yeah. and, and, and lots of news organizations do now, almost all, except the Wall Street Journal is the only really prominent one that doesn't. Yeah. Um, couldn't they just create a great newspaper using the model of, say, national public radio, which, although it gets tax money, it could – we could imagine a world where they didn't get any tax money. It was all funded. It's a fairly small amount. It's relatively of, of, small. It could be funded by donations. And wouldn't that be uh, – would that be an okay world? Would isn't, it be? isn't it a paradox to say they can't make money by asking – by demanding it, but they could 
by they could more they could finance themselves better by stop charging subscriptions and asking for voluntary donations. That's the opposite of the way we think about Samuelson's story of public goods. The problem is markets can't charge for public goods. This is an excludable private private good. All I have to have is a password. But I think you're right, Russ. I think that newspapers, big newspapers that are going to survive are not going to be able to say, here's a password we're excluding, which is very easy to do. You've got to sign in in order to look at our content. They're going to make the content free and then ask for donations to make it possible to continue this. And presumably the reason is some relatively smaller number of people are going to donate proportionally more Yes, they will. than a few of us paying a dollar a week. Yeah, and it, it, it seems like a paradox. It's the opposite of the usual story about public goods. And I think it's an it's an interesting viable model. And again, I want to come back to what I think are some of the problems with it. But we think of it as a viable model. The reason it's viable is that besides the fact that people have nostalgia for a brand name like the New York Times, others have negative nostalgia, of course. But <laughs> but there are many people who have positive nostalgia for it, and they they want to quote curl up with their Sunday New York Times puzzle either on their iPad or eventually or on their um, in, in holding it in their hand in the Sunday magazine, and so. Foundations and others and individuals, but mostly will be foundations, as you say, or very wealthy people will will fund these out of um, out of love. Uh, and and the fact that it this is the, the punchline of this part, the fact that it's the, it's being distributed at zero marginal cost, that is that there's no subscription, there's no fee, will allow people to collect more donations because they'll say, look, we can't fund this out of by charging for it. We're gonna we're gonna raise money. By uh, asking for, we're going to beg, but the donor is going to say, "But I'm going to reach a lot of people with that high quality because the because the marginal cost to the consumer, the, the, not the marginal, it's the wrong way to say it, the out of pocket cost to the consumer is zero. Which brings me to the question then is of that business model. Uh, is that a better model than the maybe the only viable one? But is the outcome attractive relative to one? where there's not this disconnect between who pays for it and who consumes it. See, normally in economics we say, and I certainly believe this in medical care, and I, I probably believe it in, in education. I said so last week in the Diane Ravitch podcast. I said people uh, – one of the problems with the public school system is we give it away. We don't charge for it, so people don't treat it as something of value as they would if they had to work to earn the money yeah. to pay for it. And I think that's part of the problem with our school system. Yeah. And yet – here we're talking about a situation where – and I, I'm going to again use EconTalk as an example. I want lots of listeners, not because, oh, I'll get more money from Liberty Fund, but because I, that's what I'm in the business for. I'm trying to incur I, – I like the money part, sure, but, <laughs> but the real goal here is to encourage economic education. And I want to have a huge audience of highly uh, interested listeners. Will I get as good an audience if they don't have to pay for it? Yeah. And I think I will. I think it'll be just as good. I don't think yeah. there's going to be a an incentive problem there. I don't know. What do you right. think? If, if the comparison you're making to have it behind a, so, but this all suggests a question. I think the the question that you asked is a very interesting one. It does seem like you'll get as good an audience. Is there before I ask you? There's something different about healthcare. Is there something different about the internet? I subscribe to the Wall Street Journal. I get the paper version. I don't mind paying it. For some reason, it just infuriated me to think I was going to have to pay Isn't that weird? Yeah. to get access to the New York Times. It makes no sense. Is there something about the Internet where we think it should be free? And are, are, are we going to get over that? Are, are there going to be 
is it going to be possible to charge subscriptions? I don't mind paying for software even. So it isn't even everything on my computer. It's just what's on the Internet. Why is it, and maybe the listeners can help, or they'd be interested in people's comments, why is it that we want stuff to be free on the Internet to such an extent that we'll actually harm ourselves? It was a, the New York Times was about a dollar a week when they were charging. I would have paid that. I would have been better off having access and giving up a dollar, for heaven's sakes. That made you mad. But I made myself worse off by having some sort of bizarre principle, and this is bizarre, some, what I saw as a principle, that, no, it should be free. Why? Why should they provide this service for free? And yet, I, of all people, and I, I'm not big on the whole people do, should do stuff for free, I fell into that trap. Yeah. Uh, Part of it, I think, is the a feeling of entitlement because that's the way it's you know that that's the way it's always been. You know, there's a famous story. Can't believe you and I've never talked about this on the air, but I don't think we have. Um, there are a lot of people over the age of seventy. I think seventy is about the cutoff now. Maybe it's eighty who hate the Red Cross. Do yeah. You know, do you know this? Do you know this story? I do not. Okay, they hate the Red Cross, and and I first encountered this. I used to do some work with with charities and nonprofits. Uh, through the business school at Washington University, and I, I'd be talking to some charity and the, or to some group of individuals, and then I always say, "Well, that's be, that'll be okay as long as we don't as long as we don't have the Red Cross involved." And I thought, "Gee, you know, usually the Red Cross, I would think, would be kind of a positive vibe organization. They must would feel warmly toward the Red Cross." Yeah, absolutely. And it turns out there's a significant group of people. It's diminishing over time, but there's a significant group of people who have a visceral, angry, negative reaction to the Red Cross. Why? And the answer is, this is unbelievable. In World War II, the Red Cross and other um, national organizations that help with sick and wounded people uh, used to give away donuts. This is not a joke. This is not, this is not an urban you're, – you're, you're making this up. No, and it's not an urban legend. They used to give away donuts to soldiers and, and whoever it was. And at some point during the war, they started charging for the donuts. I, I, I could see it coming, but I, I didn't believe it. And it was a nickel, I think, was the amount. And I've even heard people in the Red Cross today say when they encountered this, from, and it's always you know, from veterans or veterans' families, they always – sometimes they'll come to a meeting and they'll bring a box of donuts. And they'll say, look – or two boxes or a gross. And they'll say, here's a bunch of free donuts. Let's just not talk about the donut thing, okay? <laughs> this, is, this makes up for all the donuts we charged, the 17 donuts that we made you pay a nickel for. But So that argument – and I don't know – I think this is a true story. I'm sure we'll get some comments. But I've heard it – I. I'm a skeptical person. It sounds like a fake story, but I've seen it in person. I've seen people complain about it, and I've heard Red Cross people talk about it in frustration. They took something they'd been giving away, and they said, well, gee, we're losing a lot of money on this. And, of course, in the case of donuts, unlike the internet, uh, the more people you – as you lower the price, you get more people, and your costs go way, way, way up uh, because each donut has a cost of eight cents or three cents or whatever it is. So – in that case, they were so angry at having to pay for something they were given, even the, even though they're real costs. It wasn't like they were profiting off the soldiers. I assume maybe maybe they're charging. I, I I have to admit, I just looked this up on Snopes, and the Snopes claim uh, apparently after investigating it Snopes. was that the, the the U.S. Army asked the Red Cross to charge for coffee, donuts, and lodging. 
So uh, it 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 not it wasn't trying to make a profit. It was trying to break even, and the army was worried about having to provide a subsidy because people valued the service. So uh, it's I, a true it, story that they in did. In spite of my skepticism, <laughs> Snopes they have they have quotes here from Eisenhower, uh, General Dwight D. Eisenhower directly about this issue. This this is. So the the I, I was wrong. It's not just the internet. It turns out it's internet and donuts. Yeah, it turns. <laughs> so, of if course, you got it for free, and then they start charging. What's wrong? We had a contract. Oh, even though there's no contract at all. And of course, it's not even true for many many other things that it could be true for. Right? If I have a if I have a new product and I want to get you to try it and I give you a free sample. You don't come back two weeks later and say, hey, it was free before. I'm not paying for it. We all understand that some people things give or, are given away for free to get people interested. But I do think there's a sense of, uh, of entitlement. I think psychologically it's very hard to pay for something you used to get for nothing. Um, there's probably a, a thousand other things going on here. But I, I do think it's going to be hard to put that genie back in the bottle. And I think it's going to be hard to go back to a podcast we also did recently with Steve Mayer that that for people who have – uh, stolen their music for many years, they're yeah. going to have trouble paying for it emotionally. Yeah. It, 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 and the fact is, what that means is, and this is the thing that's amazing to me, and I, I do it myself, that means they will forego transactions, the value of which would be less than the money that they would have to pay. It's irrational, and yet they will persist out of this sense that it's wrong. Yeah, um, of course, if it disappears... If news organizations disappeared and, and one came along with it with a you know had a subscription fee, I, I don't know if that would uh, change things. Uh, if we're right, it would have to be generational. So that there are there are organizations that sell music at ninety nine cents a song. There's a song I really like. I look, I say, I want that, but I have to pay ninety nine cents. I'm not going to do it. It should be free. Well, ninety nine cents is not enough to worry about. But I'm going to forego this transaction and not be able to listen to a song that I like. Because I have this principle that it should be free. Or are you going to steal it elsewhere? Uh, well, I'm going to I'm going to spend four dollars worth of my time yeah. stealing it because it should be free. Yes. So that yeah, if I spend two hours stealing it, I should have paid the ninety nine cents. It's not free. Yeah, it's a. Um, I'm not sure I understand. Well, I know I don't understand this. Um, it's just something uh, to think about. I do think the that the evolution of information is going to take some unexpected twists and turns over the next five to ten years um, as organizations try to cope with the fact that their resources are shrinking and they and they have to find alternatives or, or they're going to disappear well let me let me let me ask that question would it be okay you you posed a, a conjecture that might actually be right the reason I didn't want to pay the New York Times is it's for-profit company if it becomes a nonprofit, would it make it easier for me mentally to pay a subscription fee? So maybe that is the business model that'll work. You set up a nonprofit. We're only covering our costs here. We're going to do our best, and it's a fee-for-service nonprofit. It's not a donation nonprofit. Maybe I might be more willing to pay if it's new. So the nonprofit, the New York Times as it exists, disappears. A new one, which is nonprofit. But charges for subscriptions might be more viable. I'm not sure that's true because you're, that, that's not the argument you made. You said it'd be easier for them to get contributions, and that's clearly right. But I might even be willing to more willing to make a, a, a subscription, a fee-for-service arrangement, if it's a nonprofit. That really would be perverse if that's true. And, and you, the other area, this you know, to, to bring us full circle back to the medical issue, 
uh, you know, back in the 50s, I think it was the 50s, um, it was considered grotesque that people would get paid for, for giving blood. And um, economists weighed in on this. Uh, there was a, a book by Richard Titmus called The Gift Relationship, which I confess uh, I've never read or if I have, I've forgotten about it. I probably tried, tried to read it or took it out of the library a long time ago. Wrote a piece on this ages ago with Michael Wolkoff uh, for for the New York Times on on the incentives of this, and um, it's such a weird weird thing, right? Do you want people to donate blood for money, or do you want them to donate blood out of love? Well, if you haven't donated out of love, and the same is true for kidneys, and we had Alex Tabarrok talk about it, talk about it here before, you don't get very many. <laughs> I want them to donate it out of love, but they Not don't do many. it. Well, it's really painful, obviously, and hard to do. Um, I don't know. It's um, – I just wonder – what I find fascinating is is that our cultural attitudes towards these things have have ebbed and flowed in well, – Well, but the, your your point is a good one. The question is whether would, would, would a – suppose you had two companies. One's a for-profit company that sells blood. The other is a non-profit company that gives away blood to people who need it. Which one is more likely to make you go in and roll up your sleeve? And how much would the for-profit company have to pay you for blood? Probably quite a lot, whereas the Red Cross and others get people to donate blood for free because they're not making money on it. So there, the for-profit has an advantage. The non-profit has an advantage. But the argument at the time, and I think still is the argument, uh, although it's probably changed. I haven't looked at it in a long time. The argument at the time was if you if you pay people for the blood, you get – People who desperately need money. They're more likely to be drug addicts. They're people with health problems. And they, they may give too often because they can lie about that. Because they that. can lie. They've got hepatitis. They've got AIDS. But technology, is, I assume, has improved that, that problem. Um, it's a very interesting – and again, could co- they, the two could coexist. You could have places where people collected blood for, as volunteer, gave it as volunteers. Others where they gave it for money. Um, if I remember correctly, plasma is, is – Still has a, or at least did have, a commercial market. You you donated yeah. plasma for money. Yeah, uh, I assume it's because it's harder and less pleasant to donate, and they just couldn't get enough of it if they asked for volunteers. I don't know. Um, anyway, the fundamental question, which which I started with, and we'll close with this, is uh, as economists, we tend to argue for the power of profit and monetary incentives. We understand that there are lots of other motivations that affect people, but I think it's. The world's a little more complicated than than we sometimes think, and the role that money plays well, – I know it's more complicated than economists sometimes think – and the role that culture plays, the role our, our expectations play, and the role that non-monetary forces play in trying to get around incentive failures, uh, motivation, uh, is also um, part a large part of the story. And earlier you mentioned Hayek, and you said the Hayekian argument about markets is providing information. And Hayek, of course, did make that argument in the 1945 American Economic Review article. But later in life, Hayek made arguments about forms of organization that might not really look like traditional markets, that might have cultural variants that could be nonprofits. And the way to figure out whether they're going to work is to see whether they survive and are able to provide these services and are able to attract donations or enough revenue to be able to operate. So in a way, there's an interesting Hayekian view about nonprofits also that I, I, I think it would be interesting for someone to research and, and do more work on because his, con- his concern was
was largely, it's going to be hard for governments to do this. But later in life, especially in his uh, his later works, he wrote about the, the wide variety of different voluntary private organizations that might be able to do this. And you can't tell in advance. No one has enough information. We, the scholars, the economists, can't say, well, markets have to do this. It may be some kind of voluntary private organization that solves the, the donation problem or the sense that people want to provide their resources and their time to nonprofit organizations instead of strictly for-profit market institutions. I, I think that's a fascinating subject. Yeah, and how those institutions would emerge, what form they would take, whether they would mix in some, some profit revenue-generating activity. Um, it's... Um, let a thousand flowers bloom is yep. probably the the right answer. Uh, but I, I find it, and of course, the other area we haven't talked about is software, Wikipedia, um, open source software where people are contributing mm-hmm. uh, their time without direct compensation. They may get some reputational advantages, of course. But um, there's a lot of things people are doing these days, uh, not for money, that, that they do out of love, and it works pretty well. Yes. I guess today has been Mike Munger. Mike, as always, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. It was a pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.